Listener Production. Don't assume that this person cannot perform because they've got something big going on. Because very often for high-performing professionals, work is what is saving them. And sometimes the work performance won't be affected one bit. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe. And this is Fast Track. What do you do when you're literally a brave, strong, confident working human one day and then the next day a cancer diagnosis blows your life up? My guest Jane Marshall found herself facing this very question when in January 2020 she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Sadly, these life-changing events are not unusual occurrences. Bad and difficult things happen to us as humans. Divorce, illness, pain and suffering. And it's often disruptive, depressing and confounding. Big questions emerge about who we are and what's important to us. And then there is work. How do we navigate this important part of our identity? How do others and... Should others respond to us at this time? What's the right and wrong way to be around someone who is sick or hurting or suffering? Jane and I are going to explore these questions and hear of her experiences, her advice and her insights. And one from me about Don't Head Tilt. More on that later. Jane has been at the top of her career and describes herself as brave, go-anywhere, do-anything kind of woman who has had an interesting life and an incredible career. She's travelled the world, been a global digital leader, and she's been a role model as a career woman. Now she's an author, and her book, The Naked Truth About Breast Cancer, is brilliant. It's raw and insightful. It's informative and it's personal. I've read it, I've loved it, and I recommend it. Today, Jane is talking about her story and work, and what we can do for ourselves and others when bad news arrives at our door. Jane Marshall, so lovely to see you again. Welcome to Fast Track. Thank you so much for having me and for such a wonderful intro. Look, Jane, your career to date has been fascinating. Can you give us a sense of the journey you've had and were on? Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate in that I got to start my early career in my 20s during the first and second dot-com boom in London doing various startups, which was just the most incredible time to be young and in London, you know, when all of these new technologies arrived in the business world. In my 30s, I went a bit corporate and ended up as director of digital. This was when the web browser came along and changed everything again. That was one of Europe's largest media companies. Got to 40, realised I needed a break, Uh, spent six months in Mexico City learning Spanish, spent a year working as a dive guide on a dive boat in the Pacific, tons of other things as well. I took two years out and just went wherever the wind took me. Just a fabulous thing to do kind of mid-career. And then 2010, I landed in Australia, spent seven or eight years at Telstra doing various change and transformation roles at kind of director level. And now I'm in my 50s, I run my own business doing innovation, human-centered design and customer experience. So I've done, you know, tiny micro startups, small corporate, large enterprise, and now I am my own boss. Yeah, you sure are. You were about to 
take a contract in Canberra when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Can you share the impact and disruption that occurred personally and professionally? <laughs> yeah, so the complexity was I had this cancer diagnosis and I'd just taken on a new client and then there was COVID. So I found myself doing my cancer treatment in Melbourne, living alone in lockdown and servicing my client who is based in Canberra over Zoom. So there was a lot going on at that time. And obviously, my main concern at that point was as a consultant, you know, there was a possibility they could have said to me, look, you're too much trouble. You've got cancer. We're not here for that. Fortunately, they let me take as much time off as I needed and worked around me, which was a huge relief because, you know, as well as I do, if you're a, you know, when you're a consultant, if you don't work, you don't get paid. You know, if I'd been in a role in corporate, I wouldn't have pushed myself to go back to work in the short timeframes that I did. But, you know, thinking more broadly about your question, you know, I talk about breast cancer as a bomb going off in my life. Mm. There's a very distinct before and after, both in terms of who I am, but also my life, you know, my work, uh, who I am in the world, who I want to be in the world. And when I first got diagnosed, honestly, I just put breast cancer on my to-do list along with all my other things. It was another project I was going to do and tick off. And somewhere along the way over these last two years, it, I had this kind of slow realisation that cancer is not a project and you don't get to tick it off. Like you're never the same again. And the disruption and the consequences of this are enormous. Um, it's not just that the treatment is really debilitating. You know, there's then the post-treatment grief that can go on for six to 12 months where you're just lost in a sea of grief. And then when you start to, you know, make your way back to the world again, you come back to the world as a completely different person. And so, um, you know, after cancer, you, you want to then go on and make life changes. Um, and so there's disruption of that kind, but for a very different reason. Are they the three stages that you describe in your book? Uh, sort of. So the, the three stages, I, I'm a bit obsessed with rites of passage. And a rite of passage is just any time in life when there is a distinct before and after. So it can be midlife crisis, divorce, death, illness. It's when something really massive comes along and just, you know, blows up your life. So in a rite of passage, there are three distinct phases. There's the event itself. Uh, you know, something happens and you know it's big. I remember hearing the words, you've got breast cancer, Jane, I'm really sorry. And I remember at that very moment feeling like I slid into a different dimension of life. Like I had this realisation in that moment that I was different now and I would always be different and that I was existing somewhere else uh, to everybody else. So that, that's the first step, the thing that changes. The second step is what I call the, the liminality, the kind of in-between. So this is when the heat, the drama, the emotion around the event has subsided a bit. Mm. And you're wandering around a bit. You're a bit lost. You're a bit ungrounded. And this is where the grief, the depression, the trauma, just feeling lost. That's where all of these things start to happen because you know that your old life and your old identity is gone, but your new life and your new identity hasn't been created yet. And you just feel... Lost, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. And this kind of liminality is very, very hard for alpha types because we're used to getting what we want through money, through negotiation, through force of personality. We're used to always manifesting exactly what we want. And this kind of liminality can be agony on a kind of emotional and existential basis because we have to just sit there while our subconscious does the work of processing the grief and the change. 
And then the third phase is what I call the new reality. And this is when you've processed the grief, you've processed the trauma, you've cleared out what needs to clear out. And importantly, you've made sense, you've made meaning of what's happened to you because humans need meaning. We need a story to be able to operate successfully in the world. So you, you kind of come back to the world with a, a new lens, a new story, a new sense of self, and then you have to go on and create a new life for yourself. So those are the sort of three phases of a rite of passage. Which is a really great explanation for anybody standing on the sidelines. It's also a great explanation for people who are going through this experience as much as it's unwanted and being able to understand that there are phases to almost move through. Is that fair? Very fair. And and in fact, this is why I wrote the book, because when I was going through cancer. I'd never seen any cancer up close. It's not in my family. It's not in my friendship circle. So I was just turning up every day and just doing my best and not having any idea what I was doing. But I was keeping a diary, allowing myself to be completely unfiltered. And then in year two, I looked back over my diary and I realised, because I'm a framework person, I'm a management consultant, you know, I have a framework for everything. When you have a framework, you can make sense of what's going on for you. And I read the diary and I realised, aha, this is a rite of passage. And that's when I put it into that framework and hence the book was born. You know we're all about work here on Fast Track. And there's a section in the book called About Work. What are your messages to people about dealing with difficult situations that we've described at work? Yeah, huge topic. In the book, I say there are strong pros and strong cons for continuing to work when you're in the middle of something as big as cancer. You know, on the one hand, work gives you structure, purpose, a place to feel competent when your life feels like a mess, a place where you get to feel like you're in control. Um, And it's really nice to have a place in your life where you can just be you where you're not your cancer, just for a little while. So there's lots of reasons to keep working. On the other hand, if you have something that's really serious, like cancer, self-care has to be your number one priority. No, it just, it just has to be. And I didn't realise that at the time. I was pushing, I, I was doing what alphas do, what leaders do. I was pushing and pushing and pushing, and I didn't want my client to see any drop in performance. I needed for myself for there not to be a drop in performance. So I was pushing myself. In fact, you know, I was working 10 hours a day, which is ridiculous when you're going through cancer treatment, Um, getting up at six in the morning and making sure that I was always ahead of my client. I mean, it was just ridiculous. It was stupid. But I didn't know what I know now, which is the worst thing for you when you have cancer is stress. The worst, because it turns off your immune system and you need a healthy immune system if you have cancer. So, you know, that's the kind of flip side. If you're going to keep working through these things, you need to have a way to manage your stress, to probably reduce your hours. You need to get good at asking for help, delegating, all these things which are very often quite hard for very successful, achievement-oriented people to do. Mm. And in the workplace, I know that there are some people who don't like to share what's going on for them. Others are sharing a lot. So it's really a very individual experience. I know of recently a leader who said, oh, I found out my person, you know, who was working in this area had cancer. And I just said, go home and don't come back. You know, we're, we're supporting you. But actually, it was the wrong thing yes. to do. That person needed some confidence and competence and to be able to have some routine in their world. Yes. Jane, I'm really curious about what you want people to know about how it feels 
and what's happening for you when something of this magnitude occurs? It is a complete emotional roller coaster. You're having every emotion under the sun and all in the space of five minutes. And so if you work with a person or you're in a relationship with a person who suddenly has to go through cancer, what you have to know is that the person you know is not there at the moment. They're on this um, huge roller coaster. I remember when I was in the treatment phase, I have never felt so vulnerable. You know, I'm a woman who's used to running my own life and leading major projects. And I felt more vulnerable than I've ever felt in my life. You're exhausted, you're very lonely. No matter how good your friends are, this is a journey you do alone. So there was all of those things. There was the fear, the existential terror of death, which, you know, you can't avoid when you have cancer. So there's all these things that come up. But interestingly, there was also like this superhuman strength that came through. And I, you know, you don't really know who you are until you're tested. You know, it's when your back is against the wall that you realise how strong you are. And I, I, this version of myself came through, which was extraordinary and remarkable. And I look back now and think, wow. Um, so there's extreme emotions on both sides. Mm. Then on the other side of treatment, we've already kind of alluded to this a bit. There's the grief phase. There's also a huge amount of self-respect that comes through afterwards at what you did for yourself. You know, I took myself through this. I did it. Mm. And then... For me, it kind of concluded with an exhilaration at being alive. You know, just waking up every day and just thinking, wow, isn't it amazing that we're all here, alive, having this experience? It's just beautiful. So it's really helpful to know how other people are feeling, but not all of us are really capable or equipped to actually show up in the moment. And I know we all know somebody who's had a difficult event or a divorce or cancer, but you say not all people are suited to this moment of showing up for others. What do you mean by that, Jane? Uh, What I mean is that not everyone can cope with a person who's in distress. It seems to trigger something in them and they just run for the hills. And so whether it's cancer or a divorce or, you know, a death in the family, it's a very common experience that sometimes your best friends won't be there for you and you don't understand why and you have to go through a process of forgiveness and understanding. But I also say in the book that other people who you didn't even know cared about you will literally show up at your door and go above and beyond. Strangers who live in my neighbourhood would leave bags of food at my door. How kind is that? Uh, And then there's other friends who are just nowhere to be seen. Which is what I call the head tilt, which is the (laughs) the head goes to the side and it's like, how are you? And then they move on. So it's just a funny joke between us cancer survivors or whatever we like to call ourselves, you know, in that moment. Which leads me to what should people be doing and thinking and saying to support others in their time of need? Where's the... Where's the guidebook for this? I think the most useful thing you can do is listen without having opinions, which isn't just useful for cancer, it's useful for work, it's useful for your family, it's useful for your your life partner. This idea of just holding space without judgment, that's the most useful thing you can do for somebody else because the most annoying thing for somebody going through a really hard time is somebody else expressing their opinion about what they think you should do it induces rage. You think you're being helpful expressing an opinion and the other person's just not interested, 
for one moment in what you think they should be doing. So hold space, just hold, hold back your opinions. Manage your own fear is another big one. I would have people saying to me all the time, yeah, my mum had breast cancer and she died um, all the time. So, you know, keep your own stories to yourself. And then uh, I think the practical things are really important, you know, because when someone's going through, whether it's death, grief or cancer, there's this exhaustion, there's this inability to perform your kind of normal day-to-day -day things. And so it is incredibly helpful if somebody will just do your shopping that week, walk your dogs that week, um, to say to you, look, I'm coming on Saturday and I'm changing the sheets on your bed. Um, you're going to the hospital on Tuesday, right? I'm picking you up at eight o'clock and I don't care if I sit there all day, I'll be waiting for you outside when, when you're ready. So be really, really practical. And if you're going to offer help, you have to do it on the basis that you might not be getting anything back for a long time. Um, so it has to be completely unconditional love, unconditional practical support, because this person's in the hole for a while. What about at work? Is there anything you think there's some do's and don'ts for people to think about? Like we mightn't be best friends, but is again, is it the deeply practical? That's a great question. And it depends very much on the person, mm -hmm. you know, because I, like you, I've heard of people who did their breast cancer and didn't tell anybody at work. And I don't know how you would do that because the chemo makes you look awful. I don't know how you could hide it, but obviously some people must, must do. So I think it's about respecting the individual. So if somebody obviously wants to keep it private, then I think, you, you know, you have a duty to respect that. I took a completely different approach. And from day one, I said look, this is what's happening to me. And I was publishing my blog and all of those things. And I wanted to talk about it because it helped me to normalise it for me, helped me to make sense of it. And I got incredibly frustrated because someone would say to me, how are you? And I would say, look, honestly, I've got breast cancer um, and I've got this going on and I've got this going on, but, you know, overall I'm fine. And then the conversation would just stop dead. Mm. So, um, you know have a conversation with the person who wants to have a conversation without freaking out. That's incredibly validating for that person. Mm. Lean into your own personal tension by opening up the conversation about the other person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing to get right. Mm. I'm not saying it's easy. Mm. Because also what we want is different on different days. Mm. You know, this emotional roller coaster. some days you want to talk about it and be open and some days you just want to sit in your own private grief. So... Learning to let the other person steer, I think. So, Jane, if I'm a leader and I've got someone in my team that's going through one of these life-changing events, whether it's divorce or cancer, whatever, what are your tips for the leader in managing the person going through this event? So I think this is where you have to bring all of your leadership skills and being able to have really good, honest grown-up conversations um, and in a sense you need to take a steer from them so I'd say look don't assume that this person cannot perform because they've got something big going on because very often for professionals high-performing professionals work is what is saving them from the existential hole and sometimes the work performance won't be affected one bit so don't make the assumption because it's very patronizing you know don't call somebody in and say look you know I'm, I'm gonna stand you down off this big project or you know don't make that assumption you know I 
worked all the way through my treatment and my client never saw a dip in my performance, not for a second. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is the kind of flip side. On the other hand, don't assume that because a person is presenting as okay that they are okay. High performers, alphas, we've all spent decades performing in corporate roles and we can perform uh, and look like we're okay even when we're dying inside. Um, and so you have to be quite skillful at understanding when this person needs to just be allowed to continue as is and when you need to have a conversation around, hey, maybe this project isn't right for you or maybe you need to cut back your hours or what can we do to help you because you look like you're struggling. So that it's a, I'm not saying it's easy, it's, it's hard, but I think those are the two things to watch out for. Okay, great. Fantastic. Those assumptions, we just need to throw them away and, you know, break any bias on what we think it must be like and open up the conversation. I love it. So is the same apply if I'm the leader and I'm the person going through a divorce or cancer or an event that is life-changing? Well, I think this is where you need to be very, very honest with yourself. And this is where having a coach or somebody like that is very useful because you might need to sit down and have a really honest chat with yourself about, can I really bring my best performance to this role right now? And if I can't, what am I going to do? And I would urge being proactive about it. And self-care has to be your number one priority. And so you need to put that at the centre. You might need to delegate more. You might need to do less. You know, sometimes leaders find it very hard to prioritise. Sometimes we're all, you know, we're all trying to do too much. So sometimes you, you might need to just sit down with the person you report to or your coach and just sit and look at all of the things you've got on your plate and say, okay, what's really important and what can wait? Mm. One last question around that leadership piece. Do we share our story with others or do we protect them from it? I think that's a personal choice. But I think the worst scenario is when everybody around you can see that there's something going on for you and you're not telling them and your performance is suffering or you're grumpy or you're dropping the ball and you're normally on the ball um, and not giving people an explanation, I think that leaves, it leaves a gap, which is very hard for people. And you know what I think, what I've really learned over the last few years is that people love helping. Mm. And that's really hard for high performers because we like to do it all ourselves. But, you know, sitting around a table with your team and saying, look, this is what's going on for me right now. Um, I'm cutting my hours back. I'm going to focus on just these two things. All right, how are we going to divvy up some of this work? Amongst, you know, for some people, that's a development opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, to step up and help you is an honour. In your book, I learned a lot and it is raw and it's engaging and interesting. I'm wondering what other tips you have for us about coping with these difficult and life-changing moments? What have you learnt? What can you share? Uh, start by asking what this experience can teach you. I don't mean to sound glib, but whatever situation you find yourself in, there is always a gift somewhere. You know, for me, the gift of having cancer was realising I'm not my job, I'm not my possessions, I'm not my money, I'm not any of these things, and realising how beautiful it is to just be alive. Well, that's an amazing gift, right? So always look for the gifts. They are there if you look hard enough. And sometimes they're not obvious. 
in the early days. Sometimes you have to really sit with them, go through the anger, go through being really pissed off that this has happened to you, the resentment, the loneliness, you have to go through. And then one day the gift will present itself to you. Mm. And I also say to people, you have to allow this thing to break you, you know, because it's in being broken by life that we let go, let go, let go of the things that don't matter, the things that aren't really us. And that's how you find out who you really are, what you're really made of. And if you try to stop the breaking, and if you're spending all your energy trying to steer back to where you were before and the person you were and the, you know, the life you had, you can never face forward. You, you, just, you, you cannot recreate yourself. So you have to allow yourself to break. It's in the breaking that you realize that life is really simple, that all life is is having a life you love every single day having people to love and people who love you back and that's it. And that's what these really, really big life things do for us if we sit with them and, and allow ourselves to just collapse for a little while. And on that very poignant note, I'm going to say thank you so much, Jane Marshall. Really could have talked to you for a very long time about this topic, but I want to thank you for your concise, interesting and helpful insights about what has been a harrowing journey. But thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.